This week, the Prime Minister has set out his ambitious 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution, which will create and support up to 250,000 British jobs. Covering clean energy, transport, nature and innovative technologies, the Prime Minister's blueprint will allow the UK to forge ahead with eradicating its contribution to climate change by 2050. Welcome to another one of our Regen podcasts. Today we're looking at the 10-point plan just announced by the government uh, this week. And we're switching things up a bit today. So I get to interview the boss, our chief exec, Merlin Hyman. Uh, So Merlin's often the one doing the interrogating and you might have been on the other end of that, but now it's our turn. And of course, you know, as well as interrogating him, we do actually want to hear his excellent insight and learn from his vast experience as well. So welcome Merlin to another one of our podcasts. Excellent. Thank you very much, Madeline. Good morning. I, I think you might have been calling me old there again, but uh, I know I'm going to run with that. It's a theme. We'll keep it going through all <laughs> okay. the podcasts. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> so the team have given me a long list of questions to ask. So first up, um, uh, Merlin, can we have an extra week's holiday? Oh, no, sorry. Uh, <laughs> wrong list. Let me go back to the 10-point plan. Uh, so, yeah, we're here to talk about the 10-point plan. Uh, much trailed, hyped up, uh, particularly turbulent time for governments. So are quite interesting to see all the comms coming out around this when we've got a a Brexit week, a new president and all the rest of it. So quite good to see that coming out. Um, Lots of big ambition. Um, So Merlin, I kind of wanted to get your opinion on how this compares to other big announcements and policy moves we've seen in the climate world over the last few years, you know, Climate Change Act, electricity market reform. And where do you think it fits in terms of the significance and do you think it gives us a sense of how committed the government is to, to the climate agenda? Yeah, thanks, Madeline. I think, first of all, we should, you know, we should welcome this. When the government does actually come out with a plan that's focused on net zero, that's focused on jobs and opportunity agenda, puts that front and centre of its communications, part of its kind of recovery from COVID, getting back on the front foot from all the kind of uh, some of the, the issues within number 10, you know, it, we, we should definitely welcome that. Um, in terms of its significance, there's some definitely some important stuff in there. The uh, ban or phase out, whatever they want to call it, of the internal and combustion engine in, in vehicles is uh, forward to 2030. Clearly, a big, big, significant measure. Um, it feels like some of the other things in there they haven't quite managed to sort of finalize or land and we're really waiting for details behind that and mechanisms of delivery to really judge how you know to make to make a final judgment so in that sense i don't think that today is quite at the level we're talking about with with sort of uh, legislation like the climate change act which you, you mentioned which really w- was a very significant world first moment and is has really can shape the UK's response to um, the climate emergency ever since. Yeah, um, I I would agree with that. But I do think it's um, interesting to see the Conservative (laughs) government trying to put themselves on a level with that, perhaps. You know, they know they've got COP26 next year. They are trying to race ahead and, you know, perhaps meet um, some of the uh, more ambitious targets we might hopefully see from Joe Biden. I think this is I think this is their their attempt to try and put themselves on that level footing with with other big climate change agendas that have been in previous years and previous governments. Uh, 
Yes. Uh, I mean, what you're seeing here clearly is the government um, putting the climate agenda, the net zero agenda, and the green jobs and green industrial revolution agenda, you know, front and centre. And for a Conservative administration, I mean, to do that is significant. Uh, we, we have in this country been pretty fortunate in maintaining a cross-party kind of coalition around the importance of, of, of climate change and action on that, which hasn't been the case everywhere around the world. Um, and that really is incredibly important um, because it, you know, it, it when you have both major political parties committed, then you start to get each sort of pushing each other on and rather than sort of reacting negatively to, to create sort of clear blue water uh, against uh, cl- against those pushing sort of climate change plans, what you get is a sort of positive reinforcement. So I think what this does tell us is that this this administration is going to put tackling climate change, you know, at the front of its of its uh, policy agenda, and that that's very significant. And clearly, the run up to COP uh, twenty six in Glasgow is significant in that. Clearly, the need to create jobs and the, the opportunities that it's really obvious are now there in the green agenda is part of that. And clearly, the election of Biden, which has kind of changed the global game uh, in one full fell stroke. I and mean, it's hard to overestimate the importance of that. Um, has, has sent a clear signal of the way if we want to be a kind of global Britain post Brexit, then this is an agenda we have to embrace. Um, the the concern, I guess, with this with this government from those of us that you know want to see rapid progress towards net zero, towards the actual decarbonisation of our economy, is whether the headlines, which can be impressive, you know, are translated into delivery, whether the the will and the money is there and whether frankly the capability to actually you know take on the big challenges of decarbonizing our homes etc is, is, is there so it's it's more about the kind of the will and the capability to follow through where i think there may be still concerns and we and we really need to see further action mm, okay i'm going to stop you talking about politics there before uh, our producer Rachel uh, <laughs> gives us the warning sign. Uh, maybe we should dive into some of the en- energy industry stuff in particular. Uh, so you mentioned capability there of the industry and what we should be, uh, you know, whether, whether we're ready for this. And I think that's uh, before we start talking about whether we're ready for some of the specific announcements. I think just in in general, again, maybe compared to some of your experiences in the past, it feels like we are in quite a different position now in terms of how we're ready to take on you know, 600,000 heat pumps a year or 40 gigawatts of, of offshore wind. Do you feel like we're in a, a different position in 2020? Yes. If you think about the business community as a whole and the and investors who are, you know, largely control where the money goes, um, the crucial investment flows, then you've definitely seen a, you know, a, a pretty dramatic shift, even probably since 2019 in the last year, to taking the kind of, net zero seriously and putting that at the heart of their agendas big investors like BlackRock even you know companies like BP proposing a 60% I think of their oil production to reduce by 40% to 60% of their oil production by the end of the decade I mean those are very different uh, signals and then on the other side we've got the whole kind of 
technological shifts, entrepreneurship, new digital smart technologies coming forward. We've shown what we can do. We, the sector, the investors, clean energy can do in the power sector. Um, So there's a clear kind of confidence and template there. Um, And uh, yeah, I think there's a a real shift in, in the business community at a mainstream level. So, you know, a few years ago, this was, I, I remember you know, thinking about our Renewable Futures Conference in Bath. There'd be a few hundred of us. It was very positive. There were some great companies, great people doing great things. But it did feel like a little bit of, an, uh, of a sort of group of kind of passionate net zero kind of businesses of which the rest of the world was kind of interested. But, you know, it felt like something separate. Now it feels very much mainstream you know if you're a bright young person coming out of university nowadays with a good degree in engineering or maths or something like that fair bet you might be pretty interested in the clean energy industry i very much doubt you're going to be joining the oil sector fingers crossed (laughs) and yeah i think i would agree just looking at some of the reactions we've seen from other people in the energy industry it's all relentlessly positive like give it give us some more give us some bigger targets we can do this and i think uh, even behind the scenes people are saying yeah we we can manage this this is okay it's a challenge but we we can get there and you know I, perhaps some people might be outside of the industry might be thinking well behind closed doors national grid are head in hand saying we can't do this i don't think that's true you know we at regen with our kind of internal expertise we're all saying yeah give us some more we can manage this let's take on the challenge so that does feel like quite a a different and positive positive space so let's let's keep that positivity in mind as we okay. go into some of the specific <laughs> questions of what's actually come out of the uh, of the announcements uh, this week so okay let's dive into the first one 40 gigawatts of offshore wind so we heard that a few weeks ago you know we had boris really kind of turning back on his own words from a few years ago about rice puddings and, and wind and all that kind of stuff so some I think at the time, it's very ambitious, we might say quite surprising for the Conservative government. Um, but do you think do you think that's achievable or do you think it's enough even? Do you think we should go further? Uh, so, yeah, that, that was a, a big day for renewables. Uh, you know, the, a positive story about wind power on the front page of the Daily Mail was a, quite a moment for those of us who remember the kind of things they were saying 10 years ago. It would be nice if they acknowledged that they'd been talking nonsense for years and but obviously, that's probably a little bit too much to hope for. Um, actually, if you look back to earlier days in um, offshore wind, sort of a, a 10 years ago or so, when Regen was doing a lot of work on developing the, the supply chain, the, the ambitions were in that kind of 40 gigawatt plus scale by 2030. And they then uh, got rowed back on um, by government, essentially, and uh, nervous of costs. So I think the industry is entirely uh, confident that these are achievable targets. Um, there's a bit of catching up to do to try to build kind of UK supply chains. That was some missed opportunities many years ago. Some of us worked hard on that and uh, not enough done um, to, to really build kind of the, the UK supply chain. But uh, we're in a better place now and we're starting to make uh, progress there. Our focus, I think, and uh, you know, in a way, is beyond that, and is going beyond the North Sea alone, and into new technologies, and particularly floating wind, and to go out into the Celtic Sea and uh, off the west coast of the UK, where there's tremendous resource but deeper waters. Um, so that, for us, is the is the sort of critical next step, and we want to get going with the kind of investment and development of that. 
of that technology. Partly that's about different spreading our risk, so different weather patterns around the UK. So it's more sensible. If you put all of Europe's offshore wind in the North Sea, then you know when it's not windy in the North Sea, that has quite a big impact. Whereas if it's spread out more, then it has better uh, overall system effects. So I think a really good opportunity for um, our colleagues Johnny Gowdy and Kerry Hayes to get back to their marine days. Uh. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the early days of Regen, uh, we we did a huge amount of work to try and develop uh, offshore and marine renewable energy in the southwest and across the across the UK. It's an area that, uh, as you say, our colleagues have, and Regen as a whole has always been very passionate about. Uh, and I get, you know, the opportunity for UK expertise. We're always being pretty good at putting stuff out at sea and marine stuff, <laughs> marine engineering. So there's a huge amount of expertise in those kind of areas. Um, and, it, you know, it's very, it is very exciting. These major projects, you know, using extraordinary technology are very exciting to, to be part of. Uh, I was having a, a chat with one of our members who was um, looking at a 100 megawatt demonstration project off the west coast somewhere well but not say any more than that uh, but uh, and they talked about it might be seven turbines i was just uh, seven turbines for 100 megawatts i just it's a sort of staggering uh, uh, rate of progress and, and innovation yeah i think we'll be excited to see some some more of that come through um so yeah innovation great but we've got a lot of a lot of this technology already you know we're, we're way ahead in offshore wind onshore wind the cheapest form of renewable energy solar power we've we've made great strides in but that feels perhaps a little bit lacking in the 10 point plan and, and what 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 do you think in the industry we need to do to kind of get those existing technologies up to speed and ready to deliver it it does feel like a pretty obvious gap doesn't it there there is um actually within the the um contracts for difference announcements that government has kind of made before and opening up contracts for difference for uh, onshore wind and solar, some gleam of hope after many years whether the, these sectors have largely been kind of you know, ignored or had no real uh, support. And we, we all know that we're going to need a lot more generation and that those are very much part of it and, and very cost-effective technologies doing some of our analysis of the pipeline there's actually a lot of projects that were in the pipeline of onshore wind solar and storage uh you know, shovel ready in the jargon and not leading a lot of public money you know a, a, a contract for difference or other mechanism to just give a bit more confidence to investors could unleash a huge amount of investment in in those areas um it's a little bit hard to fathom just why the government is still nervous of, of uh, supporting those technologies, of getting rid of the effective ban on onshore wind in in England. Um, there seems to be some kind of uh, maybe it was sort of you know, concerns from certain uh, percentage of conservative supporters about the schemes and impacts on on the countryside. Hard to tell, but. That's been a bit of a blind spot in energy policy for a long time now, and and if we do want, you know, cost-effective, decarbonised power at scale, 
then you know we do need to get serious again about onshore wind and solar and the government's announced um uh, advisors in the committee on climate change national infrastructure commission all, you know are all telling them that as well well let's keep our fingers crossed for some more contracts to a difference announcements in the energy white paper you never know when that comes out in a few weeks time so we could talk for ages about uh, electricity supply and we did do that quite a lot in our um, in our recent podcast on system balancing but let's move on to heat and energy efficiency, which a uh, huge, huge topic and actually really positive stuff coming out from this announcement today. I think perhaps an area of the sector that we felt is lagging behind. Um, we're just it's a huge, huge task ahead of us to decarbonise our homes and buildings. Um, uh, and we, we don't feel like we've made enough progress in the last few years. But today we have got so they'll just go through some of the announcements that we've actually had today. A commitment for five gigawatts of hydrogen by 2030, 600,000 heat pumps a year by 2028, uh, and one billion pounds next year for home schools and hospitals. So that's in addition to the two billion we've seen from the, the Green Homes Grant over the summer. So some really big ambition there. Um, that's meeting some of the uh, requests that we've been making, the industry have been making. Um you know, what do you think we, we we need from government to deliver that? It's a, it's a lot of big targets, you know, lots of hydrogen, lots of heat pumps. Where do you think we need to go? What what policies do we need to, to make that happen? Well, I guess this is the big one, isn't it? Um, we've seen what we can do in the, in the power sector. And I think we're all, you know, confident that despite slow progress from some in government policy in some areas, you know, I think we're all pretty confident that renewables are winning let's, let's put it that way in a smart flexible decentralized energy with lots of storage and uh you know it, it's going to happen um you know we're seeing the shift to electric vehicles uh, happening so another key part of kind of decarbonizing transport locally not the whole story but you know seeing uh, progress there and technologies which most which importantly people want I've yet to meet an, an EV driver who has said they'll go back you know, to a fossil fuel car because it's just better technology. Um, we're all, you know, the, how we're going to decarbonise our inefficient, leaky housing stock. You know, we're just really in the foothills of. Uh, we have probably, I think, the stats tend to show the most inefficient housing stock in, in Europe. Um, most people don't really even recognize their gas boiler as a source of carbon. Um, we've had a lot of public policy measures. Uh, people will remember the Green Deal. I don't know if you remember that, Madeline, or it was uh, uh, before your, your time. Before my tenure, but yeah, certainly heard about it at the time and heard lots of skepticism at the time, despite not being in the energy industry. Mm. <laughs> Certainly, a, a nationwide scepticism. I think a big, high-profile policy. Um, I remember eighty or ninety civil servants working on delivering it, and it yeah, really achieved very, very little. Um, seen the Green Homes grants, and I know you, you and, and others in the team have been talking to some of our members. You know, who all say much the same thing that kind of what one year or really less than one year just isn't long enough to develop and develop the supply chains, etc. Um, so. Great to see some high-level announcements, 600,000 heat pumps a year by 2028. That's 10 times what we've got at the, at the moment. It's, it's quite an eye-catching uh, number. 
very little about how we're going to achieve that. Good to see the Green Homes Grant will be extended for another year. I think, you know, but given that we, we don't have a longer term measure at the moment, that's at least something. So there is a heat and building strategy come up. We've got a, um, a webinar on that on Thursday. I think, um, and, you know, we're all waiting for what is the, the measures that government's going to put in, in place there, the kind of framework. Um, when, when we published our um, paper on decarbonising heat recently, which we'll, uh, you'll remember, of course, uh, we, we talked about a whole range of kind of measures that need to sort of shift the incentives and start us getting on a virtuous circle, a little bit like we did with renewables, where we started small and it took a bit of time, but then we kind of built momentum. Uh, so we need to start sending different signals to householders. We need to get local authorities engaged in, uh, in in sort of planning out the future of decarbonisation of heat. We need to get consumers much more engaged in this agenda. And so policies like, um, you know, the fact that all the energy levies, everything there at the moment on our energy bill that is paying for some of the decarbonisation agenda is all on the electricity bill, um, not on the gas bill. So that really just, you know, it, it sort of tilts the whole playing field in the wrong in the wrong direction. So this is the big one. This is the challenging one. No one doubts how hard it is, but we really do need to get started with some kind of serious policies. And, and the heat and building strategy is perhaps the most important decarbonisation document along a lot that we're going to see um, in the next year, possibly even in, in this, this government, in the lifetime of this administration. There you go, everyone. You heard it here first. The most important policy coming out of government, hopefully this year, maybe early next year, the heat and buildings decarbonisation strategy. Um, so, I mean, I just want to get into the kind of the weeds of how we actually do some of this stuff. Um, you know, we've had a lot of conversations. I've had them with you. I've had them with the team, with a lot of our members about this, about the dichotomy, I suppose, between um, the market versus the state. You know, do we shove a load of money into this and say, here's a load of money for those upfront grants. Here's billions of pounds, as we're seeing already from the Green Homes Grant, to give people that upfront capital cost, you know, 10 grand for a heat pump. That's a big cost for a homeowner, plus any energy efficiency measures. Do we need, uh, a, you know, a huge amount of money to just get that started versus the letting the market get on with it? And, and like you say, changing uh, incentives, so moving um, levies from electricity to gas bills, doing things like uh, encouraging green mortgages, EPC standards, rental standards, all that kind of stuff. I imagine it's a combination of both of those things, but there's a huge amount there and there'll certainly be people in the industry who'd much rather come down on, on one side or the other. So I, I would just be interested to get your opinion on what level of support we need on, on both of those things. You know, Do we need huge grant money or do you think we're ready to uh, or do you think we're soon in a few years time we might be ready to leave it to the market if you look at the kind of history of um environmental policy it's uh there's been often a, a search for the kind of you know the the one mechanism the the kind of simple answer you know the the carbon price is the classic one if you go I remember going to meet Treasury economists 20 years ago and they were like, you know, can't we just have one carbon price to rule them all? And that will send signals out through the economy. We don't have to fiddle around with all these incredibly complicated little measures that are trying to tweak things that we probably get wrong. We don't really know what we're doing. Let's just send a good, clear market signal uh, and let you know the market respond. Uh, I think what 
20 years old has taught us is that there isn't one simple measure, that each policy area is is different, um, and that in most cases, you're going to need quite a combination. You're going to need grant funding to support some of the innovation and research and development. Uh, you're going to need regulation, good old-fashioned regulation that can be an incredibly effective mechanism in, in, in some some areas, uh, particularly when the, the technology is starting to emerge. So if you take electric vehicles, government is regulating, is banning petrol and diesel cars. I mean, it's, that's going to be a lot more effective than, than any, any other form of, of mechanism. And it's simple and it's clear to everyone. But they couldn't have done that until the market had attractive options there. They just would never have, I think, I think we probably will recognise they'd never have got away with it. Um, so as you look across the piece, you know, I often give the example of the fact we uprated all our gas boilers a few years ago to condensing boilers, you know, was one of the biggest carbon saving measures in the UK, you know, we, in the world of net zero, not, not nearly enough, but a few years ago it had a big impact and it was, a, you know, a few lines and a specification for boilers somewhere, you know, you try and do that through any other policy mechanism, you, couldn't you couldn't have done it but again if the technology hadn't existed and been worked and proven you couldn't have done it so uh unfortunately i guess you know for you know for uh government for boris and others thinking about this there isn't one just nice simple mechanism it is a complicated story you do need to understand each sector where it's at and you do need a mix of policy mechanisms and you need to try stuff out see what works and do and do more of it as well you're not going to get it absolutely right first time which can be frustrating for the industry because you don't always get the clarity long-term certainty you, you like but i think it's just a reality of energy policy yeah i think that probably sums up the 10 point plan quite well there's a, a huge huge amount of complex policy asks there from transport to uh, heating to electricity to nuclear you know this is a this is a huge shift and lots of very difficult complex policy uh, announcements for which there is no one silver bullet. In fact, there are 10 silver bullets that um, Boris has outlined today. So we know that we're, we've got a lot of work to do to get the policy detail right on those things. So like you say, we're waiting for that heat and buildings decarbonisation strategy, the transport decarbonisation strategy, and my favourite, the energy white paper, which hopefully we'll see in a few weeks' time. So I think we've probably bored people enough with all our politics chat and 10-point plan chat. So I think maybe we'll wrap it up there and perhaps revisit this in, in the future when we get some more detail from the government. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Madeline. Uh, an important day and it's been uh, great to think it out and, and where it, it sits. And as you say, I think we'll be returning to this shortly as we start to get some of the, some of, some of the detail. Great. Thanks, Melin. And thanks everyone for listening. 